Our passage today will be found in 1 Samuel chapter 6, and it carries over to uh, the first two verses of chapter 7. We got 20, 23 verses. It's a good little chunk of, of, uh, of uh, scripture there. So I'll give you a second to turn there, and then we will open with the reading from God's word. I think the pages have stopped turning a little bit. So yeah, 1 Samuel chapter 6, and then we're going to read the whole chapter and then the first two verses of chapter 7. This is the word of the Lord. It says this, The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months, and the Philistines called for their priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what we shall send it to its place. They said, If you send away the ark of the God of... Ark of the, Send away the ark of the God of Israel. Do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, What is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered, Five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and your, on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of the mice, that ravage the land, and give glory to God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off of you, and your gods, and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away, and they departed? Now then take and prepare a new cart with two milk cows, on which there has never come a yoke, and yoke the cows to the cart. But take their calves home away from them. <clears throat> and take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put it in a box at its side with figures of gold, which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who, does, who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not, the hand that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. The men did so and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight to the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their, harvest, their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. Verse 14. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh, Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there. And they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on the day of the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord, one for Ashdod, one for Gaza, uh, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, and one for Ekron, and the golden mice according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages." The great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. This is chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, 
A long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. All right, that is the word of the Lord. May the Lord bless the reading and hearing of his word. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you and we are thankful for this day that you have given. Thank you for your word. Um, all of it is breathed out by you and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So we know that through this time that, that we're going through, these long chunks of narrative uh, passages that we have in Scripture, there is benefit to us, uh, not only because you have read them or you have spoke them to us, but there are, 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 there's wisdom to glean from it. There is uh, truths that we have uh, as we plumb the depths of your word. So we pray in this time, Lord, that uh, this truth is presented uh, faithfully, that your people are ministered to uh, by the washing of the water of the word that you do through your Holy Spirit amongst your people as your word goes forth. And I just pray, Lord, that these things resonate in the hearts of us. So we pray and ask for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, it's a good little chunk. I was, my goal was to try to get through it without stumbling, but hey, you know, that's just, it is what it is, right? So a uh, large chunk of passage, right? Um, and I, I wanted to kind of briefly recap where we've been in order to understand where we are today. But to do that, I'll just say this. Eli and his sons have died. The ark has been captured and the Israelites are wailing and lamenting. They're, they're mourning over this tragedy. Um, they thought that they could wield this ark of, or the ark of the covenant as like as itself it had some sort of magical powers within it, right, to conquer the enemies. They're taking these priests with the ark, and if, if God is with us, who can be against us, right, and they go forth, and that was their understanding, right, that they, that they took the ark with them to. Now, as I thought about that and, and what happened there in chapter 4 with all of this, I kind of, I wanted to kind of bring that to modern day and, and how that kind of happens uh, to, to, to us today. What would they have thought if these same people were, were people today. Well, some of the things that we hear in common, common vernacular among Christian circles and, you know, the evangelical world through televangelists and all of that is, well, these men were going to slay their giants, right? They were going out there to slay their giants. They, with the ark, if they have the ark with them, they are victors, not victims. Uh, they thought that they could, as they had the ark and they traveled with them in battle, they'd have their best life now and they would be defeating the enemies of God. Right. Once that came along, it, it was it was a wrap. Right. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Right. We, we, these things get brought about. They're they're spoken of. People quote Jeremiah 29, 11 about this prosperous life we're called to have, not a life to harm us, but to bring us peace and all of these things. Right. All that is what gets pushed. And, and that's more than likely the type of mindset these people had in this time. We hear things like Exodus 14, 14. Uh, the Lord will fight for you, right? That, that's, that's something that's brought up over and over again when it comes to bad circumstances and trials and adversity and these types of things. And so all this kind of thought is in the minds of the people. But not only were they defeated in this battle, they lost 34,000 soldiers in the process. Not only the 34,000 soldiers, but then also the, the ark was, was um, taken captive or, or um, was taken and, and uh, taken back to to uh, Philistia, right? They lost it. So where we find ourselves now, the high priest has died, which was Eli. He was a prophet of God. His sons are dead. Uh, his grandson was named Ichabod, which meant the glory of the Lord has departed. And he's now an orphan because both his parents died. And then the ark is gone, right? This is where we find ourselves right now at the start of chapter six. Uh, but that, that all that occurred back in chapter four. Now, as we get to chapters five and six, the story follows the ark. It doesn't follow the, uh, the Israelites, as we've seen so far, but it follows the ark with uh, the Philistines. And so that's where we are in, in chapters five and six. Now, as I thought about that, as we read this passage and you saw towards the end of it, God struck some of the uh, Israelites down who looked upon the ark or looked into the ark. Seventy men were struck dead, right? We see that at the end of the passage. But I think about that and, I, you know, something that kind of, always kind of bothered me as I, as I would read through passages like this where these Israelites are getting struck dead. Uh, Nadab and Abihu are struck dead when they offer strange fire. Uzzah, uh, as he attempted to hold the ark as it was tipping over, he gets struck dead, right? All these Israelites are getting struck dead as they touch the ark, gaze upon the ark, do anything that they're not supposed to do with it. But the Philistines are able to just grab it and snatch it back to them and, and take it with them. 
right? And so that kind of thought was going through my head where I'm like, why were they able to deal with the ark irreverently, but the Israelites couldn't, right? They're, they're all men. Uh, and I had to challenge myself because the thought, and maybe, maybe this occurred to you too, is that, you know, although the, the ark is, is a sacred uh, item that God had had, had, had the, the people of Israel create, it didn't have any power in and of itself, right? It's not like it was coated with holiness, and then as people touched it, they'd, they'd fall dead, right? That, that wasn't the purpose of the, uh, of the ark. But that's something that kind of went through my mind as I would think, as I was thinking through this passage, as I see uh, the way the Israelites were affected by it. Um, and, and we're going to kind of talk about some of that today, why that kind of comes into the, the minds of us as, as people, um, and I think the reason that is because all too often we have this natural way of thinking where we end up placing our faith and our trust in things or people or circumstances instead of in God. And so you kind of see that with, with the ark, right? The way the ark was treated. It's like, okay, well, if we have the ark, victory is ours, right? We take this ark to battle, victory is ours. Ark's gone, where's our hope now? Right? Where, where is hope to be found? Because it's, it's gone from us. Um, but what we, what we recognize is we can't trust or fear things. Instead, our hope and trust and fear, all, of, all the reverence that we offer should be to the one true God, our eternal king of glory. Now, as we get into this, we're going to kind of talk about the Philistines more so than the Israelites because this narrative follows them. Uh, but I, wanted, I was trying to think of a way to package this because by the end of the sermon if God speaks to you through it and you're like man that was a good sermon and if somebody asks you hey well what was it about a lot of times it's like uh, well I just remember it, it's administered to me right that's kind of the idea uh, I see some heads shaking that happens to me too um, but the way I tried to package this I, I think it, it works well and it's, it's applicable to us today um, anybody familiar with the five stages of grief that terminology right the um, denial uh, anger, depression, uh, bargaining, and acceptance, right? That's kind of that, that cycle of grief that we go to, that, that we go through when we deal with, with tragedies. Now, the Israelites are going through that. Uh, we will, we've seen, as we read through the passage, the Philistines are going through that. And considering what, what happened to uh, Brother Henry this morning, uh, our church is experiencing that as well, right? So I think providentially, uh, by God's grace, this sermon will, will be a blessing to us dealing with grief in our lives. And that, so that's where we get the, the title of our sermon, uh, that we do not grieve like the world. Uh, that, that's, that's something that we are not called to do, but we must know how we are able to grieve and why uh, we grieve in that fashion. So I'm going to use those five steps. We're going to lump them into three parts because we don't have time to go through five of them. Um, but we're going to talk through those, and I think they help package what's going on with the Philistines, uh, where they went wrong versus what we're called to as Christians. So with that said, let's go ahead and look at verse one. I think this sums up our first point. Uh, and here we're going to talk about the idea or the stages of denial, anger, and depression. I want to reread that verse for us. It says this, excuse me, the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. Seven months. So what happened over the course of those seven months, right? That's, that's what we want to know, right? If this is the first verse in this chapter, what happened over the course of those seven months? Well, we see what happened in, chapters, uh, in chapter five. Verse six, I think, does a good job of kind of encapsulating that. It says this, the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territories. Now, when you think about tumors, you may have something that you think of. Right. This verse here specifically, uh, it's kind of debated on what tumors actually were. Uh, there's a couple of ways that it's used in the Old Testament. So it's described this way. Uh, tumors, right, growths, lumps, uh, boils, ulcers, and hemorrhoids, right? So these are the four ways that it's used in the Old Testament that we see, and it could have been potentially any of these, right? If, if someone gave you the option and they said, hey, I'm going to afflict you with this tumor, right? It can either be a, a, a tumor, an ulcer, hemorrhoid, or ulcer, or a boil. Which one do you want, right? None of them, right? We're not taking any of them. They're all terrible, right? So regardless of what it is, the fact is that it was very unpleasant to have any of them. 
Uh, now we get to verses 11 and 12 in chapter 5. There we're told, for there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. Right, so people were dying. People, there was this deathly panic that was amongst these, these people. Now, I don't know if you've ever experienced a deathly panic. Uh, I would say no, I haven't. Uh, but there can't be anything good about it, right? Panicking is not good, right? People have panic attacks, and it's, it's terrible to experience one of those. Uh, but deathly panic just makes it sound even worse. And so what this, uh, this word meant in the original language carried more of a meaning, which the, the word describes it well, uh, violent, chaotic, or a death-inducing panic, right? People were dying, and if they didn't die, they were struck with, with these tumors, right? Violent, chaos. It was just, it was a terrible situation. It's kind of like when you've heard the phrase, all hell broke loose, right? The, the floodgates are open, and it's just, things are ravaging, it's chaos, it's, it's a terrible time to be in those areas. And that's what's happening here, right? That's what they're experiencing. They're highly tumultuous, tormenting situations is what's happened. And now, you know, the, the uh, excuse me, the fact that not only were they experienced this violent, chaotic chaos uh, with these tumors, well, then there was also mice involved as well. Uh, the thought is that these were filled mice. They could have been any size, but imagine wherever you go, you're stepping on mice. They're crawling in your pots and pans, uh, in your food. They're eating your grain, right? They're just, you know, not only do you feel bad, but everything around you is in, in total chaos. People are flipping out. It's just a, it's a terrible situation. I, I, I won't say who, but there's someone I'm related to that is deathly scared of mice. They can be this small, and he don't want to be anywhere around them, right? So imagine that, right, having that kind of fear, and you're just loaded with mice everywhere, right? It, it is not a pleasant experience. And not only did this experience happen in a moment, right? It wasn't like it just happened one day, and, man, we got a mouse in our house. I've got this boil or tumor or ulcer or whatever for a day, seven months. All right, this went on for seven months. Now, I've, I've experienced panic, right? It, while I'm driving, I fall asleep or something, or someone swerves in your lane, right? That's, that's an instant. Uh, but that kind of panic for seven months, right? Seven months, these people are going through this panic, right? I think this would cause a lot of grief, right? When we think about grieving, stressful situations, there would potentially, as this art comes to town and then these boils pop up or ulcers pop up and these mice start flooding in town, you may, there may be that initial shock or denial, like, well, maybe there's some, some kind of coincidence, right? There, it's, it's not because we have the ark. But then after a while, it's like, it's because we have this ark and there's anger there, right? You're like, these things need to die. These boils, tumors need to be removed. It's too painful. Why are we going through this? And then you, you hit that cycle, right, where... There's, there's no hope, so then you become depressed, right? There's the denial, the anger, and then the depression, right? All these things kind of get experienced uh, over the course of seven months. For me, it would have happened day one. I would have been, I would have hit that full cycle day one, but these people are dealing with this for seven months. I, I, I feel like I need to stress that because we live in a microwave society, a society that everything is, you know, you. You know, TikTok videos are seven, eight, ten seconds long, you know, and you're watching over and over. You're trying to get the point uh, across very, very quickly, right? Commercials are short. Uh, this is a ex long, extended period of time uh, that these people are dealing with this suffering. But I think about that, right? I think about how we've all dealt with different types of grief, right? We all deal with different kind of suffering and pain and heartache and all of these things. Uh, there's all kind of panic that surrounds us, but I want us to think about for us, right, in that type of chaotic situation that they were experiencing physically, right, oftentimes for us, it, it's up here, right, it's in our heads where all the chaos is going on. So I want us to think about that. What about you? What's, what's grieving you in this time, right? What is the chaos that's going on in your head? Uh, what are you in denial about, right, that, that you're going through in this time? What, what has made you angry? Right? What, what are you frustrated about? What's, what kind of bitterness are you harboring because of these situations that you're going through? And if you've already experienced those stages of grief, what are you depressed about? Right? What are things that, are, that have just defeated you, where you don't see the end of it in this, in this uh, point in time? Now, like I said, the title of this message is Do Not Grieve Like the World. 
We're not called to grieve like the world. And, and that's not just the way, that's not my words. The word tells us that, right? That's where we go to find any and every answer that we're seeking. First Thessalonians verses 14 and 13 says, uh, 13 and 14 says this, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, for those who are asleep, uh, about those who are asleep. And then here's, here's the, the kicker right here, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Right? We don't grieve like the world does. This, this life isn't the end of, of life for us. Right? When we die, perfection. Right? Sin, that sin-riddled body is done away with. We're glorified with Christ. We're with him forever. And all pain, all suffering, all of that is removed. Every tear will be wiped away. We never have to worry about those things again. It only gets better from this point. Amen? So we are not hopeless, right? We have the only true hope, Jesus Christ, our hope of glory. But going back to the Philistines, when they have no hope, right, they go from denial, right, letting this go on seven months. They go to anger, the violent corruption and uh, chaos, to depression, right? What, what, do we, what normally follows when these, when these things happen this way? Well, according to these stages of grief, we, we begin to barter. We begin to uh, bargain, right? We try to see what we can do to change our circumstances. And that's what we see in verses 2 through 12. So let me reread uh, re verse 2, and we're going to talk about what goes on in verses 2 through 12. It says this, And the Philistines called for the priest and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Right. They've recognized that there's a problem now. Right. They've been dealing with this for seven months and now it's OK. Yeah. Right. I've had enough. What can we do to fix this? So the bargaining starts. Right. They start bargaining. OK. What I, I've had it up to here. And now they're reaching out to these priests and diviners. These are the spiritual leaders, the holy men of their their people. Seven months of plagues and they finally had enough. No longer are they in denial. They're still fed up, right, with, this, with these tumors and this infestation of rodents, but they're physically drained, they're emotionally depleted, and now they, they, they've ran out of options. So that now they're looking for something to do to fix this. So their priests and diviners, right, like I said, they've got this, this tall task on their hands. Um, for one, they're, they're pagans, so they've got a tarnished view of Yahweh, the God of Israel. They don't have the scriptures they have their own writings that they hold to, their own ways of thinking, their own ways of, of uh, religious activities that they hold to. Um, their eyes, their ears, their hearts are all dead, right? They're all spiritually dead to the things of God. So when this is the case, you, even though they're these holy men, these wise men that they're running to asking for help, they, they've got no help for them. So the next best thing is what? They've got to try to make something up. They've got to hypothesize, okay, if I am Yahweh, if I was Yahweh, what would I want, right? I know what our God wants, Dagon. That's the God that they, that they worship, the one that the, the idol fell before the Ark of the Covenant and was chopped up in many pieces. We read that in chapter 5. That's what, they, they know what their God wants to be offered. Uh, but what, what would this God want to be offered, the God of Israel? Um, so, so they start thinking about it. What, what would, if I was God, what would I want? That's, that's kind of the, the thought process behind them. What would make me happy, right? If I was God and, and these were the people that answered to me, what would make me happy, right? What would make me happy? What can be offered to me in order to appease this wrath that I'm seeking to pour out on these people? Well, we, we see that in verse 3. It's, we're told that, that they told them, send away the ark of the, of the God of Israel with a guilt offering, and then they will be healed, right? You do this with a guilt offering, you'll be healed. This, this will happen. But you ask yourself, okay, well, what is that guilt offering that they're offering, right? They, a guilt offering is obviously you're recognizing fault on your behalf, right? Hey, this is my, my peace offering, right? I'm, I want peace with you. But this, hey, I'm, I'm wrong. I'm guilty. So let me give you something in order to show uh, that I'm trying to pay restitution for the things I've done against you, right? So what was the guilt offering that they were given here? Well, there was an ark that was given back, uh, the cart that was, gonna be, that was carrying the ark, the five golden tumors, the five golden mice, uh, and, and two milk cows that had never been yoked before. Now, if you think, if you go back, like today, you're like, man, this sounds crazy, right? Why would they give these kind of things? But if we put our Old Testament goggles on, right, try to look through the lens of what was culturally appropriate at this time, 
a lot of cultures practice animal sacrifices. So these diviners, these priests, hey, we offer sacrifices to our God. We do these type of things. It only makes sense that we would do the same thing for this other God. So why would this make sense for them? Why would this be a, a common practice uh, to, to offer these items? Like what makes these items significant? Well, I think given the arc back shows that taking it was, was wrong, right? Setting it on a cart and not dragging it behind the yoke, uh, behind the, the cattle shows some reverence for it in a sense. Um, the golden tumors and the golden mice show, hey, these things came from you and we're acknowledging by giving you this gold weight, you know, these gold uh, figures of these items that you poured your wrath on us with, like we're showing our, our acknowledgement of the sin against you and then the fact that you sent these things to us, right? So we're, we're trying to offer this, this offering back to you. The milk cows, well, they're milk producers, right? They're, they've born uh, calves. Uh, they're, they're fruitful, right? They're, um, they've never been yoked together, so they're not like labor, uh, laborous cows that are maybe got tough meat or whatever. So if they decided they wanted to cut them up and eat them, right, it's going to be some, some tender meat, right? So the understanding is kind of all of these things, hey, these are prime selections of things that we want to offer in order to appease this God. So in the eyes of man, the things that they were doing would seem reasonable, right? These would be, seem like honorable things to present to this God, right? If, if we're looking through the eyes of man, if we're thinking the way man thinks, these things seem reasonable for them to give back. But what did God think about what was offered, right? We go back to that. What has God spoken? What has he said concerning offerings, things that would be offered to him? Does this align with that? Well, what we see in the, each of these different items that they offered back to God, they broke a different law of God. First off, the cart that the ark was on, Ezekiel 25, or I'm sorry, Exodus 25, verses 13 and 14 command that the arks be carried with these golden coated uh, acacia poles, right? They slide them through the rings and then they, the, the ark was to be carried, not resting on a, on a cart. So they broke that law. Uh, the golden tumors and mice, right? We see in Exodus 20 that we are not to make any images of anything on, on, in heaven or on earth, right? Not creeping things or any of these things. And these were being offered as a uh, type of worship to God. They broke that law. Uh, the milk cows. Leviticus 1.3 tells us that uh, the offering of sacrifices are to be males without defect, right? So they've got two uh, cows that they're presenting and they're to be male oxen that they are to offer for a sacrifice so that's three strikes right you got you struck out with these three items nothing was um, nothing was presented to God in the way that he had commanded it as Isaiah says in in uh, his letter or in his book these items that they're presenting as their righteous deeds are but filthy rags Right. They look good on the surface. They meant it in their hearts. Right. There was a a, a um, an intent in their hearts that was good. Right. If you want to go there, it was sincere. But God did not ex accept this as a valid type of uh, of worship uh, because all these things broke his law. Now, I don't want to like just beat them up too much because, you know, they've they've already experienced everything that they're going to experience and in, in eternity they'll experience more of that but when we look back at them and say man you know had they known these things this was this was dumb for them to offer these things in this fashion right why would they offer these things knowing that either knowingly or unknowingly things that God does not want why would they offer these things but I think if we if we really think about it like how do we normally react whenever we're caught in sin and we're trying to appease God or offer something back to him in order to make things right in our relationship with him? I think that's something that, that typically happens with us. Whether it's a sin issue or circumstances are bad and we want, we want God to move in these circumstances, right? We, we try to offer things in order to see him bring these things to an end, to end our suffering, to end our pain, uh, to restore a relationship, to do whatever, you know, remove this thorn in our flesh, whatever the case may be. We are trying to find things in order to present to him, in order to change his mind or to appease him in a sense, to remove this suffering, this grief uh, from our lives. And, and, we, and I think we all do it. I think, um, you know, I'll use myself as an example, but I think we can relate to this. If there's some issue that arises, typically what happens, we begin to pray more. We're reading our Bible more. Uh, we tend to 
be nicer to people. Um, you know, we don't let things get to us as easily. We try and try and try to do more good things. Like that's, that's where our mind goes. I, I, I need to create this, um, this bank of good merit to present to you in order to, to show you how, how, uh, how bad I feel about the things that I've done in order to pay that sin debt that I owe to you, right? If God sees me and he knows my heart, maybe just maybe as I present these things to him, he will remove these things from my life and I can go back to that life of comfort I had before. Am I the only one that does that at times or is that, no? Right, I mean, that, that's, that's, that's what we do. That, that's, what we, that's the bargaining that we do that we're talking about here. That's what the Philistines are doing at this time. Please remove this from me. Right, take this from me. Here, here are the good things that we have from our land. We want to offer this to you. Please remove these things from my life. Now, that's kind of where we see ourselves, and that's the way these Philistines were. And if we look at Scripture again, nothing new is, is under the sun, right? Everything is everything. It's always happened, right? The way we think, the way we act, we just have new toys to do the same things that have always been done. That's, that's the only difference. Uh, but we, like I said, we go from this denial, this shock, that type of thing, to anger, to depression. Uh, whether it's a low depression or a shallow depression, we go through these things and then we begin to bargain, right? We tend to barter and present these things in order to see God change or move in our situations. Uh, but then it goes through that and then we get to our final step, right? That acceptance of those things that you can't change and then you seek to live a life in light of where you've been. Now, like I said, as we talk about these stages of grief, that's kind of, I just want to use that as the, the model for, you know, how to, how to package this, what we're talking about, because there is a way that the world grieves, right? There, there is a way that the world grieves, and, and I don't want to make light of anybody's grief, because we are to mourn with those who mourn, um, but there is, there is this way that the world grieves, and there's a way that God has commanded us to grieve, right? Through those, we're going to go through those steps, but where is our heart in the midst of those things, right? Are we sinning against God through that process, or are we remaining faithful even though uh, we're struggling to believe it, right? Jesus, when he um, healed the, the, a man's son, he told him, you know, if you believe, you will, he will be healed. And he said, yeah, I believe, but help my unbelief, right? That, that's, that's where we are. We're not always as strong as we'd like to be, but there's always moments in time where that weakness is there. We need to be honest about it, right? So uh, we're going to look at uh, the last or in the, the next chunk of verses. We're going to look at um, verse from verse 13 through chapter seven, verse two. That's that's where we get this acceptance. Right. This is what we're going to talk about here. And one thing I want to mention as we, we get to this part is um, this this whole grief process. Right. It's going to look really similar on the surface. If you just took a Christian and an unbeliever, sat them side by side, you gave them the same type of news it's going to look really similar, right? There's going to be tears and heartache, pain. Like there, there's going to be this in, internal struggle and turmoil. We're going to go through all that stuff just the same. So I don't want to discount it and make it sound like, like uh, we won't go through it or we won't go through it for an extended period of time, right? There's times where we'll go through longer seasons of depression than others, uh, longer seasons of, of pain and suffering and these type of things. But there's always, there's always hope, right? There's always this silver lining that, that God is with us, right? That he is there with us. And, um, and I think that's what's important, right? When we think about the Christian versus the unbeliever, kind of got ahead of myself as I said that, but why would the Christian, why would the Christian have more hope than the unbeliever, right? Why, why would there be a, a greater hope for the Christian versus the un, unbeliever? Well, as we talk about grief, we talk about tragedies, we talk about death, scripture is clear to tell us even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, right, even though I deal with all the things that deal with death, right, the pain and suffering that leads to death, the, the sting of sin, all these things that we go through, even though I go through all of these things, though I walk through that valley, I will fear no evil and I will continue to have hope. Why? Why would I continue to have hope? Why will I fear no evil? Well, because you are with me. The, the eternal king of glory has made himself known to me and has called me his own. And he is, he is with me forever. He will never leave me nor forsake me. 
Now, as we talk about this acceptance, right, having all these things in mind that we've covered, we're going to look um, at verse 16 in particular to talk about this acceptance. Once again, this is from the Philistines' perspective uh, of where they're coming from. So listen to this. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. So what did they see? All right, what did they see? They saw the cows being offered as a sacrifice, right? They sacrificed the sacrifice, um, and, and this was, they, they believed this was an acceptable peace offering or guilt offering given to the Lord, so they went back home, right? Once they saw enough, okay, they offered this, um, which on, in one sense shows that the Israelites didn't even know how they were to offer stuff if they accepted this as an offering, but then it shows it from the Philistine perspective as well. Like, okay, everything's going to be back to normal. Well, you know, my, our hands are clean. We're back, we're back to square one. Let's go back and, and continue living our lives uh, the way that we've, we've always lived them, right? They've, they've accepted the turmoil and the strife and all the stuff that they've been through the last seven months, and this was sufficient payment to get them back to zero where they're able to kind of live their lives how they want. Now... As, as I kind of thought about that and where the Philistines, where we'll see them over the course of uh, the letters from Samuel or these books of Samuel, um, Philistines don't go away, right? There, there's continual battle uh, with the Philistines and the Israelites. Uh, by the end of, of 1 Samuel, they're responsible for the death of the king, for Saul and his heir, Jonathan, right? They're responsible for the death of these men as well as countless other lives of the Israelites, and so if you think about what they've done, right, they, yeah, they were ravaged by this ark for a season, but then once they offered this offering, things seemed to, to kind of get better for them, right? So if you're an Israelite and you see, well, they gathered this ark and they brought it back and then we have people that died, right? They looked on the ark, what they shouldn't have done, but they got killed. Seventy men are struck dead once they get it back, but they had it this whole time and they didn't have to really worry about touching it in that fashion, Right. You, they would. There's the potential to look at them and see greener pastures from this other side. Right. Where you're like, well, why do they get away with this? Why? Are, why is it OK for them to do these things? Why are they continuing to prosper? Why aren't we able to eradicate them as a people? Why can't we just kill them off? Right. If these if we're God's people, they they are not God's people. They they hate the God of Israel. Right. You see that with Goliath, how he's mocking God. Um, why aren't the people just getting wiped out? Why are they allowed to continue on living these prosperous lives that they live, right? Philistia was on the coast, so they had all kind of trade there. It was a prosperous land. So, you know, the Israelites were in, in battling amongst themselves. They were battling the people around them, right? All kind of strife is going on amongst the people of Israel. And then they could easily look at them and kind of view them as like, well, why is life so easy for them? We're supposed to be God's people, Right? And I think about us today, right, when we think about the way our world looks today, when you look at the world versus the Christian world, if you will, um, there's definitely more millionaires and billionaires that are unbelievers than are Christians. There's definitely more doctors, actors, celebrities, musicians, right, people, in, in, in business professionals, right, there's definitely more uh, unbelievers, and like, like I said, we're considering all other world religions plus agnostics or atheists or whatever, there's definitely more of them in the world than there are of us. And if we can go even further within the church, what you see on TV a lot of times, a lot of the, the music that's presented, a lot of the preachers who are uh, extremely popular are presenting a false gospel. Uh, that that's just seems to be riddling the, the Christian world as, as a whole. And it seems like there's more of those, uh, honestly, even if you look around our city, uh, than there are faithful Bible preachers. And so you can think to yourself, well, why, why are God's people, if we're to be the ones who prosper and be a light into the world and all this and that, why are we hindered? Why are we struggling? Why are we uh, feeling like we do when the world has just seemed to have everything working out for them, right? Why are things working out for them and not for us? We're supposed to be on the winning side, right? We're the ones that are supposed to be able to, to show the world, you know, God's light and, and, and all of that. There's, there's thoughts like that, that that can easily go through our minds. Why is the world uh, have the pinnacle of health, wealth, happiness, and, and overall uh, material prosperity? Why are, th why are these things that we see out in the world? and not so much within the Christian fellowship. Well, one way that we tend to excuse this type of stuff, which I don't think is a, a good argument or a good way to even view it, 
is we're like, yeah, they may, they may present that to the world, but deep down, they re they're really not that happy. They're really not that whatever. Or, and we kind of impose this negative outlook on life for these people. But I, I think that's, that's a lie because um, God gives people over to their sins. And so these people are deceived and they go on deceiving. They truly believe that they're happy. They truly believe this is where life is found in these things and money and possessions and all of that. So they're, they're happy. As far as they know, they are content in their lives because they are dead to their sin. They don't even recognize that weight of sin that has been uh, revealed to us as God's people. So I, I don't even think that's a good argument, right, to say, well, they, they're not really happy. They're not really this. Or, yeah, a lot of them, they, they don't know any different, right? That they, don't, they don't understand that, that weight of sin, and they've suppressed that truth of God enough to where he's given them over to those things. So where is our hope found, right? When we think about these things, we look out in the world, where do we find answers to help bring peace to us? Go back to God's word, right? It's, it's him and his word is where we find hope, we find peace. That's where, that's where, that's it. That's all, that's all we have in this life and that's all that we need. Mark 8.36 says this, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What profit is it, right? You, you can be like Solomon and have all the riches in this world, be the wisest man on this planet to ever live besides Christ, right? You can be that person, and without Christ, it, it, that stuff doesn't go with you, right? It doesn't go with you. It's nice to have nice things. It's great to be comfortable and to not have to worry about your bills, your children, uh, food, all not being able to have to worry about those things, your health. Man, it's fantastic. If you're blessed with that, amazing. Praise God. Like that, that's it's a wonderful thing to be able to uh, boast in the Lord in those things. But none of those things ultimately matter if we forfeit our souls. Now, what, what else has God said concerning these things? Where, where can we stand upon in order to find hope, find peace, to find true joy that is found in Christ alone? What are how do we do that if we're looking out? you know, in the world and seeing, well, this person does this, this person has that, right? They seem to always be happy. They've got a great marriage. Their kids are respectable, whatever the case may be. Where is our hope found? Once again, it's found in God's word. Listen to these verses uh, that we find in scripture where we can find hope. Ephesians 1, 3, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. 1 Timothy 1, 16, but I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, the foremost, the chief of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Amen. Amen, right? That's, money can't buy that. Right? You can't buy that with money. You can't be healthy enough to gain eternal life. And true happiness, true joy is only found in Christ. Now, as we think about the world, right, and, and those what's in store for the world, if, if they continue in their ways, we look at the Philistines in the same way. If these, what happened to these Philistines that battled against God and died in battle, hating God, did this type of thing? What was in store for them in light of these potentially prosperous lives that they were living? Well, it's the same thing that's in store for any person today who dies in their sin who do, before they bow their knee uh, at the throne of grace. That's what's in store for every single person in that state. Those victories, those breakthroughs, those moments of clarity, the epiphanies, all these things, the, the, all the highs that they can potentially experience in this life, that's the closest an unbeliever will ever experience to anything that we find in Christ. Right? That, that's as close as they'll ever get, and it still falls extremely short. Now, for God's people, we get a glimpse of heaven every time we meet together as God's people. Right. God is amongst his people. He is in the congregation of his people is what he says in Hebrews. Right. He is here washing us in the water of the word. Right. As I'm presenting God's truth, the Holy Spirit is who is actually speaking to your heart. Right. When there's times where it's like, man, like you, you spoke right to me. Yeah, that, that was God speaking 
to you in that time. I, I'm, I'm the, the vessel that's being used for honorable use by God. That Pastor Ricky, David, anybody who preaches from this pulpit, anybody who preaches faithfully God's word, that's, that's all they are. They're a vessel. Right? God is the, he, is, he has the power to salvation for all who believe. Uh, that, that's, his, that's his doing. That's his power. That's, that's his glory that is, um, that is due to him. Right? That's why it's so important to not forsake the fellowship of believers. Right? This is why we gather weekly, because it's so important for us. Now, this experience that we have, right, what we've been called to, it, it, it can't be purchased. Right? It, we can't buy it. We can't return it. it. There's no sales or commerce that's traded in order to make this happen. Right? Jesus Christ purchased us. By his blood, right? That's, that's how we came. That's how we were adopted into the family of God. He died for us in our place. Now, as we kind of close our time, right, we think about what all God has done. We think about these things in our lives. What, what now? What am I to do with this, right? With what has been shared today, this, how, as we grieve, as we see how the world grieves versus how we're called to grieve, uh, as we see what we're called to and, and the, the, the shortcomings we have in this life, what are we to do, right, with, with what God has given us? How, how can we glean wisdom from our passage uh, today? Well, I think that question can be answered with a question, uh, and, and that question is this. Does God want to be worshipped in the way you want or the way that he wants? Right, as we think about sin we commit, the things that we do against him, the things that we seek to do in order to appease him, what does he want? Does he want to be worshipped the way that I think is appropriate, the way that makes me feel good, the way that me, makes me feel comfortable, the way that looks good in front of people? Is, is, that, is that what God wants? Or does he want to be worshipped the way that he has commanded? And he has told us how we do that. He's told us we worship him through, the, through his word in spirit and in truth, right? We, as we gather on Sundays, that's why we pray. That's why we read the word. That's why we sing songs of his praise and we proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ through the word. That's why we do anything that we do, because he has commanded us to worship him in this way. We must keep the essentials or the main things, the main things, right? Every church isn't going to look like ours physically, right? They're not going to have chairs or pews or even be indoors, but the main things must stay the main things. If we drift from that, that's when we start doing what man wants and not what God has commanded. Now, the second application that we will have before we finish our time today is, right, as we, as we worship him, that's, that's what we do. We, we go back to his word. Uh, but as we find ourselves under the hand of God, right, if there is a sin issue that we are dealing with right now, if we've recognized as we've grieved in the past or as we're grieving right now, we've understand that we veered from what God has commanded of us and we're doing other things in order to change his mind. If, if that's you or whatever the case may be, whatever sin issue is kind of uh, entangling you in this time, how, how, how are we to respond in light of, of God bringing this to light in our lives? How are we to respond to that? How, if, if sin, if our heart's been pricked and, and we understand there is this sin that needs to be uh, dealt with, how do we deal with that sin? A lot of times what people do is they'll want to read their Bible more, they'll want to pray more, they'll seek counsel from, your, from the pastors uh, or the local body, right? They'll reach out to other Christians and do that type of thing. And, and all, all that stuff is, is good. It's all helpful. It can be. Uh, it can be really helpful in the, in the time of need. But the question we go back to is what has God commanded you to do in those moments, right? What has God commanded you to do in those moments? Because what feels good may be going to your mom, to your brother, to a, your best friend and confessing these things, that may, feel, that may make you feel good and that's what you're comfortable with. But what has God commanded you to do, right? Because if we don't do what he's commanded, we're just like the Philistines offering these milk cows and these golden tumors, right? We're, we're no different than them. So what are we commanded to do? What has God commanded us to do when we recognize that conviction for sin that, that we need to deal with? That's one, two, three. Four, four or five words, five words, right? I'll start with the first one, repent. Repent. Right? If you recognize sin in your life in any form or fashion, repent. 
Start there. We st- repent. Bow that knee before God, right? Repent. The rest of that is to believe the gospel. We repent and we believe in the gospel. It's that simple. Uh, you know, it, I, it, there's not five easy steps to find forgiveness in Christ. It's repent, right? Repent and believe the gospel. Now, if you're wondering, okay, well, how do I repent? What is repentance, right? Because if I tell you to do something, but you don't know what that actually looks like, what is that, right? If this is your first time hearing this, well, how do I repent? How, do, how, do, how is that achieved on my behalf? What do I need to do in order to repent? Well, I think defining that term repentance is, is very helpful because a lot of times we don't recognize what repentance is. And there's tons of great definitions out there, great books, uh, but I'll just give you mine. Repentance is this. It is a healthy recognition of sin and a realization that sin corrupts and obedience brings growth. Right. It's this healthy recognition of sin. Right. I have sinned against God. Sin brings death and obedience brings growth in my life. It it brings about maturity in my life. Now, what we must remember, what we see, repentance is a spiritual gift that starts in the will and works itself out in the actions. So we can't manufacture this on our own. It is a gift from God, right? So as the word goes forth, he ministers, he convicts that repentance is what's being granted to you. And and then it's that, okay, what do I need to do? Because I know what I'm doing. I've recognized sin in my life and I've recognized that sin is only bringing destruction. Okay, what do I need to do to reply? I don't want to do, I want to turn from that now. I want to do what God has commanded of me to do. So that's what we are called to do, repent, repent. And believe the gospel. Believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that he has done what he says he would do, and that in the end he will do what he says he will do. Now, as our team, uh, music team comes forward, I want to close our sermon uh, with a passage of scripture, right? We always go back to the word. And as we do this, as we have this time of reflection, I want us to think about these words from John in 1 John chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. It says this. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all, unrighte- or from all sin. Excuse me. Verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let us pray.